Well, good morning, church family. My name is Chet Phillips, and I am excited to to get together with y'all this morning. We are beginning our Give series today. And what we do in our gift series is every year around Christmas, we take some time as it is very easy to get caught up in the commercialization of Christmas and get caught up in the consumer nature of Christmas in our culture that we take some time to remind ourselves about the glory of Christ coming to redeem a people for himself. And that immense amount of generosity and kindness towards us so that we might respond with generosity and kindness towards those around us. And so today is the first day of our Give series. We get to announce uh, what we will be uh, doing our Give project on. And so I'd like for you to turn to Malachi chapter 2, and we will announce later what we're going to do our Give project on. Uh, Raz will get to come up and talk through all of that later. But we, as we are working through the book of Malachi... And considering our Give Project, we realized that we could do both, that we can continue to work through Malachi and go through our Give series because Malachi intentionally and uh, forthrightly and aggressively covers some of the things that are pertinent for us to understand as we try to consider uh, generosity and our approach to God with our hearts and our money and our actions. And so as we turn to Malachi chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 17, and I'd like to pray uh, before we, we get into the text. Lord, it's easy for us to come in here and to be self-focused. It's easy for us to come in here and to consider what we want in worship, what we like, what we appreciate. And Lord, we ask that you would rid us of that that we would consider what you want in worship and that our hearts would be drawn to you in humility and in reverence to the glory of Christ. And we ask that as we study your word this morning, that we would hear clearly from you and that we would not leave here the same way we came in, but that we would walk out having grown in repentance and in faith and in joy and in hope because of the wonders of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're about to see in Malachi is that the people in Malachi's day in Israel were making a complaint against God, were asking a question about God that we still ask, that you've probably felt yourself or heard someone lament or heard someone aggressively say to you. And so we're going to start with this question that they ask, that we still ask. We're going to start with this accusation that we still have, and we're going to see the answer that God gives. So it's a question that we still have, and it's an answer that we still need. And so we're going to see what this question is, and then we're going to talk about the answer that God gives and how that helps us as we ask the same question. So Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? which I just really appreciate this framework that Malachi uses over and over again. He accuses them of something. He tells them something they've done. And then he goes, but you're going to say, how? Prove it. And he always does, but I just appreciate how he, he phrases this up. So you say, how have we done this? How have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? 
Now, when I was first studying this, that first statement was a little confusing to me. I was trying to understand what he meant by what were they actually accusing of God of when they say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. But the second uh, question, the question they ask, where is the God of justice, helps us understand the way they're saying that first. It's an accusation against God because they don't think he's managing things properly. They're looking around and going, well, if there is a God, I can tell you who he loves brutal people because they win. I can tell you who he delights in, the wicked and the evil and the selfish, those who hoard money for their own gain and against uh, to everybody else's detriment. I can tell you who God loves. He loves those who lie and who cheat and who steal because that's who ends up in charge. That's what they're saying. That's who gets away with it, that, that there's injustice is rampant. And that's their question is, where is the God of justice? If God's good, where is he? If God's just, how come evil is winning? And we still hear this, still feel this, still say this. Maybe you've heard the argument that God is either good or all-powerful, but he can't be both. Because if he was good and he was all-powerful, none of this would be happening. He would have already fixed this. So he can be good, but incapable of doing anything. Or he can be all-powerful, but he must not be good. Because look at the world that we live in. Maybe you've just heard someone say, well, I don't believe in a God who would allow blank. They point to some injustice. They point to some brokenness in the world. Well, how could God be real when this is going on in these countries or when this genocide's taking place or when my abusers walked free? And that's the complaint. That's the question that they were putting to God, that they were saying to each other in Malachi's day. And so God's going to give an answer. And his response is better than we could have ever hoped for. To where is the God of justice? His response is better than we could have ever dreamed. Here's what he says. Behold. Now that behold means look, but in the way it's written in the Hebrew, it, it kind of could be uh, phrased behold me. So in like southern English, or the way my dad used to phrase things, it'd be look a here. Look at here, boy. That's, that's what that is. It said, hey, uh, look at here. That's how he's saying this. Look at here. I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So this is his first response. Where is the God of justice? And he says, behold, I send my messenger before me. He will prepare the way before me. Okay, so the messenger here we're going to see is a reference to something that's mentioned in Isaiah, and it's also mentioned in the Gospels, and this is fulfilled in John the Baptist. As we read that quote from John earlier, it says, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word made its dwelling among us. And then it says, and there was a man named John, just shoehorned in the middle of this, and he showed up, and he pointed to the light. He wasn't the light. 
But he came to bear witness about the light. That's this. The behold, the one who's come before to, to prepare the way. That's John who's coming to prepare the way. And who's he preparing the way for? He says, me. So this is God speaking. And he says, he'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord whom you seek is the one they just said. Where's the God of justice? He says, he's coming. He's going to suddenly come to his temple. His temple. So this is God. And then it says... And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So it seems like there's a third. It seems like there's John the Baptist, who's going to come, this this one who's going to come prepare the way. Then there's the Lord himself, there's God who's going to come to his temple. And then there's the messenger of the covenant, or another way to word that would be the angel of the covenant, the representative of the covenant. But that last one is, it's Jesus, who is the Lord himself and the Messiah, the accomplisher of the covenant. That's why it's phrased funny, because it's the, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the same thing. That's Jesus who comes and fulfills this dual role of being God himself, who's come in the flesh. So God's answer, his response, when you say, where is the God of justice? He must delight in evil. His answer is Jesus. So he's given his answer to this question, this lament, this critique. It's Jesus who's going to suddenly come. And he did. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what we celebrate every time you see a manger scene, a nativity scene, is that Jesus suddenly came. That there were shepherds watching their flocks by night, and all of a sudden, angels appear. And they say, he's been born. The Christ has come. And that Jesus then just walked into his temple. It was his. It was for worshiping and delighting in him, the Lord of all creation. And the Lord just shows up to his temple. That this has been accomplished in Jesus. Okay. But how is Jesus the response to, where is the God of justice? Well, let's keep reading, and we'll follow his logic, and I think we'll get our answer. So he says, I'm going to send John the Baptist, and he says, I'm going to send my messenger, which is fulfilled in John the Baptist, and then Jesus is ultimately the answer, where God comes. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. You ever been in a situation where you were longing for someone to show up and fix the problem? Like you were being bullied, but your older brother was on his way? Or you were in a situation, but your mom was going to come fix it? Or you knew that as soon as this person got here who had seen everything, they were going to straighten it all out, so you just said, we'll just wait. We'll just wait till they get here. Person's still trying to, you're like, no, no, just hush. We'll just wait. We'll wait till they get here. They'll fix it. You'll see that you're wrong, and it'll be awesome. When he says... He's coming. That would have hit them as good news. Where's the God of justice? Oh, he's coming. Great. Well, we'll just wait till he gets here. That'd be great. And then he says, mm, but you're, you're not going to like it when he gets here. Because who can stand on that day? Who can endure his coming? He's going to be like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Okay, so a refiner refines metal, gets a fire super hot, 
melts the metal, and gets all of the impurities out. You take a piece of metal that's good, but not great, fine, and you, you heat it, and you heat it, and you heat it, and you get impurities out. A fuller was someone who washed clothes, made them white, bleached them. So you brought them to a fuller, and a fuller would wash them for you, and a fuller was going to clean it. It was unclean. It was going to make it clean. They were going to get rid of blemishes and spots and give it back to you clean. So what he says is, his coming will be excellent for everyone who is pure and clean. So who can endure? Because if you're impure or unclean, it's a day of reckoning. That we would stand before God and say, I'm 100% one of the good guys. See, when you say, where's the God of justice? When you say, well, he must delight in evil people. I wish he would show up. What you've assumed is I'm one of the good guys. When he shows up, I mean, we might high five, but he's not here to see me. He's here to get them. That's the assumption. If he's going to eradicate evil and I'm the one who sees it, I'm the one who can judge what's good and what's right and what's wrong. I'm the one who can see what's injustice. He's going to come and he's going to get rid of them, the bad guys. But if the standard is purity and spotlessness, he's, he's drawn the line way further back than we wanted him to draw it. Because if he says, well, have you ever sinned? Have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever uh, set things up so that things went in your favor? Have you ever recounted a story where you left some information out so that it, you looked better? Have you ever known a piece of information that would have changed how a deal would have worked, but you just kept that to yourself because they didn't know it? It's not on you to have to divulge all that. It's on them to figure it out. Have you ever lied about a person? Have you ever intentionally harmed someone? Have you ever done something good, but for bad motives? Where the action was fine, but your heart was just twisted. And so what we want is the God of justice to show up and get people who are just a little bit worse than us. But when he says, let's look at your heart, let's look at your actions, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And so that's Malachi's point. Who, who can endure? So God is coming, but it's going to go poorly for everybody. If our, if our claim, our, our wish, our desire is for God to bring the hammer down, well, then everyone is destroyed. And if you don't think you are, you either don't have a good handle on what you're actually like, and I would encourage you to make some real friends and ask them, or get married, your spouse will tell you, <laughs> get a roommate, you don't have a good handle on what you really like, or you don't really want a God of absolute justice. but he's a God of justice and he's coming. That's what he says. Then it says this. So, so far I said this was, his answer was way better than you could ever imagine. And so far, no, it's not, but it gets better. Verse three, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi 
That's what we've been talking about. That's the priesthood. Those are the ones who are supposed to be relating to God well. This is his priesthood. It's supposed to represent God to the world. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. So he's going to come and his purification isn't going to be destructive. It's going to be refining. He's going to purify a clean people for himself. He's going to purify a priesthood that gets to operate in righteousness and that has a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. And y'all, he does that in the church. That's what Jesus came to accomplish. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas is that he came to rescue and to purify people for himself. Now, he didn't come to get the good ones. We are by nature impure for him to need to purify us. So it's not, you can't go, oh good, that's what I was hoping was like the top 50%. That's not, that's not what he's doing. He shows up to get those who are impure, those who need refining, but he does purify people for himself. This is what it says in Titus 2, to show you an example of this. It says, he, that's uh, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. This is some of the same language that we looked at when we said that we're a royal priesthood now a people for his own possession who's been called out of darkness. That there's this claiming of a people and making of a people and a purification of a people that he's come to accomplish. And that is why this is way better than you could have ever imagined. Because if we want a God of justice to show up, we're going to need him to show up and make a way for us to not be destroyed. And Jesus does that on the cross through his own blood shed his pure blood shed for our impure his righteousness laid down for our unrighteousness as Roman says that he justifies makes right the ungodly I love that verse because that's me ungodly I love that he fixes the impure because that's me that he cleans up those who have spots and stains and blemishes because that's me that's you Who can endure? No one except for Christ. And Christ makes a way for those who are impure and unclean to be welcomed. Then it says this, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. This is verse 5. I will be a swift witness against, and he's going to start listing some things out. We're going to go through that in a second. But he will judge. So the first thing he does is he purifies. He makes a way for those who are impure to be made pure through the work of Christ. But he will judge unrighteousness. As Romans says, he's both just and the justifier of those who would have faith in Christ. So that he's just and that sin will be paid for, but it'll either be paid for by him or by us. So if you aren't in Christ, there is judgment coming. And he says this, I'll be a swift witness You know how when you do something embarrassing, you do whatever's embarrassing, and the next thing you immediately do is look around to see if anybody saw you? So you do the thing, and then you go. And you know that look. You've seen people make the look, and you've seen them. You didn't see what they did, but you know you just did something. You can see a kid looking around, you're like, mmm, guilty. I don't know what. 
And if you're nice, like I, I, I hate it when I look up, you know, you look up and then you see a person and you know they saw you. And if you're nice, you could be like, pretend like you didn't see, but I will never do that. <laughs> if I see you do an embarrassing thing and you look up and we make eye contact, I'm going to do this. <laughs> Which means, oh yeah, I saw. And it brought joy to my heart to watch you do that stupid thing you just did. We do this when we do something wrong. Sometimes we'll, we, you ever, you ever do something that's wrong by yourself and you don't even think about it? And you do the same thing or say the same thing and there's a witness present and suddenly you're like, ooh. And you didn't even realize. Like I didn't even think about that until you were here to make me think about what that was like and what that looked like. I, you, you like made a, a mirror or whatever. What he says is he's gonna show up and he's seen it. He's a witness to all of it. All of it. You know that feeling? You let somebody hold your phone and they start just flipping through your pictures or whatever? You were letting them look at one, they start flipping through. I don't even have bad pictures on my phone, but I'm always like, ugh. And I start thinking, like, what? There's just, there's some guilt in us. If someone came to you and said, hey, I filmed everything you've done for the past two days. I'd like to review the tape. Immediately you'd go, uh, uh, and you'd be thinking, what did, I, what did I, even if it was just at your job, I just filmed what you were doing at work. I want, to, I want to talk to you about some of this. Our immediate response wouldn't be, great, I nailed it the past two days. Our immediate response would be like, hold on a second. And he says he's seen all of it. And he's going to bring judgment for it. He doesn't just see what we do. He sees inside of us. He sees why we did what we do. He sees what we think and why we're acting the way we're acting. And then he's listing off some things that God's going to show up and judge, some of the things they were lamenting. He's going to be a swift witness against sorcerers. So those are people who um, would have uh, practiced occult practices to try to gain power and influence, would have worshipped other deities. We still have this present in our world where people worship other gods or like even have witchcraft and those sort of things where they're trying to gain power. He's going to be a witness against sorcerers, against adulterers. Those who have cheated on their spouses or, or slept with someone who is married. And when you read these first ones against those who swear falsely, you think some of it has to do with just like our personal morality, what we've done and what we haven't done. But a lot of these are, you're going to see have this social component. It has to do with how we've impacted those around us. Swearing falsely. He's going to be a witness against those who lie. I was reading uh, two different books recently, recently in the past year or two, um, both written by non-Christians, and both said some things about truthfulness that just struck me as they were considering being honest. One of them was, he said he was working as a clinical psychiatrist, and he was doing clinical rounds in a, uh, in a facility where, somebody, where people were... Um, kept there for mental uh, issues, mental health issues. And he said that he and several of the doctors were going by and talking to somebody and they went to leave and they said they were going to lunch. And one of the patients said, oh, can I come with y'all? And he said, as far as he could reckon, almost everybody would have turned to this patient and lied to him. Would have said something like, oh no, not today. Because, you know, we, we only have room for the four of us. Or, hey, we really, today's not a good day, maybe later. He said, but the reason the patient can't come is because the patient's not allowed to leave. 
the patients in a, in a facility that they're, they're not free to just go. And so he said he turned because he had made a commitment to himself to tell the truth and just explain to the patient, no, you can't come, I'm sorry. Patient asked why, and he said, because you live here and you aren't allowed to leave. Some, some form of that. I just remember reading that thinking, oh, I would have lied. Wouldn't have thought about it. I was reading another article, where, uh, a book, where this man said that his wife fussed at him for a thing that he should have done. Like he said he was going to do it, and he didn't do it. Um, which I've never experienced, but I, I can imagine. <laughs> and he said, as soon as his wife said, hey, why haven't you, whatever, he said he immediately just said, oh, I'm sorry, I was busy. And he said that he realized in that moment, he didn't give that any thought. He doesn't even know what she was upset about, really. What the thing was, he just threw out the word busy because it was an excuse. And he said that at the moment, he realized he was really good at defending himself and had given no consideration whatsoever to what was true or real. You ever had someone say, have you done this? And you go, oh, I was about to. And all you mean is, I'm about to now that you reminded me. I think lying is one of the things that we do very, very often that affects the relationships that we have and it's just so much a part of us, we don't even notice it. So he's coming for false worship, for sexual sin, for those who swear falsely, who lie. He's coming against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. Now, they didn't have the Department of Labor, and so if you are someone who has someone come work for you, you're in a position of power, they're in a position of weakness, and you can take advantage of them. And this was commonplace. It still is. It's a common practice for those who are in a position of power to take advantage of those who are weaker than them. And I know that in this room, there are people who, you oversee the schedule, you oversee payroll, you oversee some employees. You get to lobby for or against raises for your employees. You have some say in how people are paid. And he says God's watching how much you care about the pay of the people you oversee. Those who oppress the hired wages, those who oppress the widow and the fatherless. Again, in their culture, they had very little agency. But in our culture, there's increased amounts of poverty in single-parent homes. Fatherlessness is one of the key indicators for future bad statistics. I recently was reading a a brief article about... um, it was a, just a thing where a bunch of women were, t- were ha- talking about having to pretend in emails that they were a man so that people would just work with them in a business relationship and not disregard what they were saying. Some of them said they pretended to have a male assistant. Some of them pretended to have a male boss so they could just say, well, let me run that by Mitchell and then come back and say, Mitchell said it's okay. And they were just running their own business. I've read that uh, women in general, when they try to get jobs get promotions, or buy things, end up getting paid less and pay more for the things they're buying because they don't negotiate or they don't negotiate well or the way that people respond to or whatever. And just in consideration, and considering how do we deal with widows, I used to do sales 
And if I said this was the price and you said, sweet, then that was great. You just paid that price. If you negotiated, we would negotiate a little bit. I had room to negotiate. And I got to thinking about if I had had a whole life of sales, and at the end of all of it, I'd gotten 20% more out of every widow I interacted with because they didn't negotiate. It's the sort of thing we ought to consider, we ought to pay attention to because the Lord considers and he pays attention to. How do you interact in business situations? How do you interact when you're working with somebody who's in a less powerful position than you? When they have less authority than you have? Against those who thrust aside the sojourner. Those are foreign people. People who weren't born in this nation, in their nation, in our nation. Setting aside what our government policy should be for our borders, you personally, before you stand before the Lord, what's your attitude towards people who are foreign-born, who don't speak your language? Is thrust aside a good way to describe it? Wish they weren't here, causing problems? Why do I have to press one to hear English? Whatever the thing is that burns you up, gets you frustrated. What, what's the attitude towards those who are struggling just to try to buy a thing, read a sign, participate in the life that they're around, living in the country that they're in? Is welcoming a good description or is thrust aside a good description? Because the Lord sees. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That when we act in all these ways, we act as if he doesn't see, doesn't care, and isn't coming. But he does see, he does care, and he is coming. There's judgment coming, and he will be a swift witness. But as Christians, this gets to look so different. Let's look at Titus again. We just read verse 14. We're going to start in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is the work that Jesus has done. This is this fulfillment of this promise that he's making in Malachi. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. All right, I want you to see something. Grace appears. That happens first. It brings salvation. That's the, I will purify people for myself. That's the, I will accomplish righteousness and a pleasing sacrifice, and there will be people made right. That happens through grace. That means that he did it all on his own. An acronym for grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus pays for it. We get God's riches. We get welcomed. We get freedom. We get love. All right. Grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Okay, so what trains us? Grace. If you belong to Jesus, you don't leave here today changing how you pay your employees because he's going to come get you, because he's not going to come get you. Christ was the one who paid the penalty for your sin. You get grace. And it's that overwhelming freedom and forgiveness and joy that trains us to love and to care. You don't change the way you interact with people who don't speak your language because God's out to get you because he's not. Jesus took the penalty for your sin. 
You get grace, and it's grace, it's love, it's kindness, it's generosity from God that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. I want you to know, if you are in this room, you are waiting for one of two things. You are waiting a judge who will condemn you because you are impure. Or you're in Christ and you're awaiting a blessed hope because he was condemned for you. When the day of reckoning comes, if you belong to Jesus, it's a blessed hope. It's what we long for. It's why we sing, come that long expected Jesus. If you haven't surrendered and repented of your sin and asked him to forgive you and accepted his sacrifice, don't sing that song because you don't want him to come yet. Because he'll be like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap and who can endure? But if you trust in Jesus to forgive you, he does and he will to the glory of God and then you get grace and nothing else. It's a blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it says this, this is what we read earlier. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify him for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That word zealous means stoked, amped up, pumped, ready to go. That's what it means. If you belong to Jesus because of the grace at work on your behalf, you want to do good works. You want to participate in seeing his goodness in the world. You long for it. You have energy for it. You delight in it. Not because it earns you something, not because it saves you from something. Jesus earned you something. Jesus saves you from something, and we get to delight in good works because of how good he is. So there's going to be two ways to respond this morning. I said earlier that Jesus is the answer to the lament of where is the God of justice. He's the answer because he pays for our sin. That God's first answer to injustice and sin is to have Jesus pay for it. And his second answer is that Jesus will judge all those who run from him, who fail to worship, who fail to ask for him to to forgive them, who don't surrender to him. So there's welcoming and forgiveness, or there's judgment. That's the answer in Christ. And so there's two ways to respond this morning. One is to praise the Lord for forgiveness and grace and to be zealous for good works as we get to talk through our gift project, to be delighted to get to go change some of the ways that we're behaving on things because of his grace and his forgiveness towards us. The other way to respond is if you haven't trusted in Jesus, you get to say, Lord, I believe that you came. I believe that you died. And I believe that without you paying for my sin, I would pay for it. And I need your forgiveness. And he'll forgive you. So if you've never done that, you need to do that this morning. Where you say, Lord, I trust you. I believe that you came. I believe that you died. I believe that without your forgiveness, I would stand in my own sin and I want you to forgive me. And he will. And then when he returns, it won't be for judgment. It will be for a blessed hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace, 
your kindness and your goodness in Christ. We thank you that you do answer justice, both in judgment and in the cross. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The band's going to come back up. We're going to take a moment to sing and to celebrate the grace of God in Christ for us, that he justifies the ungodly, that he purifies the impure, that he cleans the unclean. And then we're going to get to hear what our gift project is this year and respond, Lord willing, zealously.